So hello and welcome to another Future Pharmacist conference session. Um, another one of many <laughs> we've been doing this conference is it goes on and on and on. Um, but it's been absolutely wonderful and very, very, I mean, this is a cliche, but all my guests are special, but this is a very special guest today. Um, someone who's very important in my pharmacy life. Um, and uh, it's Dr. Ruth Edwards has joined us today and I'm gonna before I say hello I'm gonna just quickly introduce um, Ruth um, and give a little bit of background and, and sort of explain um, why she's here so Ruth's here to talk about so it's, so it's not really although her professional experience will come into this conversation and and actually it completely enriches um, you know what she has to say um, this is really a patient perspective um, discussion um, and one of the things so pharmacy in practice for years has done well one of the things that's been very important to me personally over the years running PIP is the patient perspective if we're not listening to patients um, you know there's absolutely absolutely no point there's a complete disconnect there so I could not do the future pharmacist conference without having some element of of, of a patient perspective and who better than um, one of my one of my former lecturers. Anyway, Ruth is going to talk to talk to us about a, quite a difficult subject: uh, her experience of of breast cancer and, and and just her perspectives on that. Really. So um, yeah, um, I'm going to introduce you. So so Ruth was was diagnosed with breast cancer a number of years ago, um, and and I've said here since then she's courageously faced into into the disease. And more than that, she shared her experience with um, considerable candor, um, and ultimately for the benefit of others, you know, um, and not least for the benefit of her pharmacist colleagues. So, Ruth, hello, how 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 are you doing today? Nice to hello. see you at our first conference. Thank you for having me, and thank you for that lovely introduction. Um, do you remember that first phone call when you called to try and get into pharmacy school and it was it was uh, me that answered um, so I was there right at the start of your journey and I'm really proud to have be um, alongside you and in, in, in your professional journey so far so thank you for having me well I don't I don't I'm a, I'm a loyal soul Ruth as you as you will have learned and others will have learned over the years in professional and business life um, I don't forget. Um, when people do me a good turn, and uh, I could tell you that morning of getting my A levels, um, I was—I think I was predicted two A's and a B, and I got—I got a B and two C's. So you know, uh, when, when you're 18 uh, and and all your pals have have done really well, it, it was tricky. But but yeah, as you say, then I phoned you basically <laughs> and said, and I had to make a decision: will I will I go on and you know will I repeat A levels and do something else or or will i will i go ahead and do pharmacy and do you know what on that call you convinced me to get up to aberdeen and um yeah and uh, you know how long ago was that 15 16 years now i've i've, I've married married a northeast quine and um yeah we've got two kids um so and i now live in the northeast of scotland so it's basically all your fault really yeah i'm sorry about that please apologize to holly for um, me as well Absolutely, but yeah, no, we've 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 got a very nice life here now. We're, you know, things things work out 
things work out in the end, don't they? But no, I won't forget that moment. And it's um, it's all it, yeah. Without labouring the point, it is given that you let me into pharmacy and give me a chance, arguably without even having the correct grades, really. Um, you know, it's fitting that that you feature in our in our first ever conference, which has been a personal ambition for years. So delighted. Um, so we're we're going to talk. Because you've you've had a tough sort of oh I don't know how long probably five six years from your diagnosis isn't it um you can yeah, six years ago yeah six years I thought it must be I wasn't sure exactly how long it was but I thought gosh it must be five or yeah. six years so tell me I mean the first obvious question is like you know that it's 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 not fair to compare me getting my A level results and, and flunking them to getting a diagnosis of, of breast cancer. But you know, it is all relative. Um but how did that feel like that first diagnosis and how did it come about? Yeah, really interesting question. So um my my journey to diagnosis wasn't a particularly short one. Um it was kind of um sort of mid-summer I saw my GP with um, something just not right in my breast um, it wasn't a lump but something just wasn't wasn't the way it should be and and you know one of the things that that's led to is me encouraging people to be really breast aware um, because if 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 I hadn't been aware of, of what my own breasts were like and what was normal then I wouldn't have had this awareness so um, she said she wasn't worried but she referred me um, to the breast clinic um, sort of six weeks later I attended a, a one-stop clinic where the idea is that they um, come up with an answer at the end of it you know so you, you leave with an answer and that didn't happen for me um, you know the, some of the tests were uh, basically it was inconclusive you know there was something one thing and something another thing and um, you know so they, they decided to do some more tests and at that point said they thought I had um, a benign breast um, lump but just to be on the safe side they wanted to remove it so all this time I'm thinking okay it's benign it's benign had some surgery um, to remove that they did um, pathology on the surgery um, and I went back for the results um, not expecting the, the answer that I got which was it's, it's actually cancerous um, and I remember sitting in that room. So at that point, um, the diagnosis that I had was um, something called DCIS, which is ductal cancer in situ, which is is kind of a precancerous. Um, but they said we need to find out the extent. And actually, in in the end, it was invasive. You know, they had to they had to. Um, it, it wasn't just DCIS, but that that came later. Um, and I remember that the. the, the signal to me should have been that there was a nurse with the consultant as they were giving me the, the information and I remember walking out of the clinic absolutely numb completely you know like the rug had been pulled from underneath me I had I had Johnny with me I had my husband with me and I had this folder under my arm they'd given me this breast cancer care um, folder and I thought I can't have cancer I can't, this can't be real. I don't. And um, and then I looked at this folder and I thought it is real. They've given me this booklet to to look at and to to read stuff. And 
yeah it I, to be honest it took me a long time to process that a lot long time to accept it um and you know i can chat about that that whole experience as well so yeah i felt like felt my, felt like my world had ended you know i felt like it was that was it sort of thing and what and in practical terms then what you know you you went to the you know you went to that one stop shop um, whatever you know whatever that sort of clinic thing was you, you, and then and then as you describe it progressed so what were the practicalities like after after you got diagnosed then what what happened next if you don't mind me asking not at all so they had determined it was DCIS but they hadn't in in the lumpectomy that they did they hadn't removed the margins so they weren't happy that they'd got the, the, the entire. So the next step um, was to have an MRI to determine the extent of the um, DCIS. And so I had that. Um, was it an MRI or was it a CT? I can't remember which. Anyway, I had, had one. of. Oh, I'm sure it was an MRI, actually. Um, I've had so many different ones. Um, and one of my biggest fears at that point was was having to make a decision about having a mastectomy so being offered a choice um and having to make that decision and i was i was at work one day in fact i was away on a pharmacy event um when i got the phone call from the surgeon basically just to say um you're going to need a mastectomy um the the dcs is extensive and um, sort of 25% of, of the breast is affected and, and there's no way we can do anything other than take the whole thing away. Um, so that was quite a, another bombshell moment. Um, but then at the same time, I was thinking, well, at least I didn't have to make that decision. Um, and then there was a whole period during after that. So that was just before Christmas um, that happened and sort of lots of appointments with the surgeon and my surgeon ended up going on maternity leave so I changed surgeon and um and the decisions sort of being made around that and and, and I remember so I, this is one of the, the sort of standout moments for me in terms of change to my practice that um the day the last time I saw my surgeon who was going off she said to me um, we've now got a suspicion of an. Oh, I had I had more core biopsies, which are the worst things ever. It's like taking a, you know, a lab pipette, which with a vacuum inside it, and it just sucks the cells out and it, it explodes basically to to get. Ooh. It's horrific, horrific. I nearly passed out at the first one. So anyway, I needed more of those, and when those results came back, she said we've got a suspicion of invasive. And I was again just really shell shocked at that, and um, Johnny was with me, and we left. And I, I kind of knew that that was medical speak for it's invasive, but we're trying to break it to you gently. Um, and the fact that it was invasive rather than DCS, I knew changed all the outcomes. So it potentially meant chemo, radio, hormone therapy, and all the rest of it. Whereas DCS is just surgery. And we walked out of the mm -hmm. clinic and I said to my husband something about, about it. And his take on what they'd said was, um, well, it could be invasive, but it might not be. 
and that created a bit of conflict between us at the time as you as you can imagine because i knew he, he didn't understand all the implications of that difference um and i knew and I, I remember almost having an argument about it and then i thought you know that's the that's the consultant's fault for leaving it really um unclear um not being honest with me and saying yeah we've we've determined it is invasive and we know that that changes all the outcomes and it would have meant that we'd heard the same thing if i'd asked for clarification that's just not in a place to to challenge it but you know with hindsight i wish i'd been able to so yeah communication is is, is one of the really interesting things that's come out of this in terms of my practice um, and it's interesting, actually, I will I will be much more, even with students, I'll be much more straight and say, well, actually, let's not beat about the bush. You know, you failed your exam, you failed it for the second time. Is this the career for you? Is this the right place that you want to be? If it is, then you're going to have to work really hard to get, you know, that it has changed me as a person, having had that experience. And, and how are you now? Um, I'm okay. Yeah, um, I so I went through, um, I had the mastectomy. I was offered uh, an immediate reconstruction at that point in time, which turned out I hadn't appreciated just quite such a, how big a thing that was going to be for me. Um, you know, it felt vain, but I hadn't quite appreciated just how much of a, almost an assault to my, my being it was going to be. Um, and and so I, I took the option of a, a immediate reconstruction. I took a, a more complex option um, because apparently I was a good candidate for that. And I got a tummy tuck at the same time. They took away my um, my my belly, and they used that to reconstruct um, the breast. So it was my own tissue they were using. And unfortunately, after four days, um, that failed. And I ended up in hospital for so 11, 12 days, them trying to save this reconstruction. Um, and then they weren't able to save it. And, and I left hospital with not just no breast, but I'd lost that and the reconstruction at the same time, you know. So, um, and then a whole series of um, reconstruction later, a silicon implant and um, some other, thing they do called lipomodeling to, to to balance things out and basically you, you get liposuction and they centrifuge the fat cells and inject them under the skin fascinating stuff that they can do um so i've had a whole series of those sorts of things happening um and i'm well now physically well now um but i'm a different person to the one i was pre-cancer and I'm, I don't always like the person I am post-cancer um, and that's been quite a challenge um, so for me the emotional recovery was actually harder than the physical recovery um, please excuse me I've got a dog annoying me at the moment you can maybe hear a <laughs> tail going I can hear a waggy tail yeah sorry it's uh, fine um yeah no it's i mean i don't i don't i mean when i was reading your you know your articles and stuff that you've written for us and others um i think the word that came to mind was was brutal you know you know you, the, the brutality of of some of that surgery that you've 
you've had and, and you've openly described. For me as a touch wood currently healthy person, I mean that that's that's I mean it is brutal, Ruth, you know, and so the emotional toll must be short, medium and long term off the back yeah. of that, you know. Um but so. it sounds like it sounds like you're sorry, Carol. I was just gonna say nobody can ever tell me that my cancer has completely gone and I will never get it again. So one in three um, women with breast, with primary breast cancer go on to have secondary or metastatic breast cancer. Um, no, nobody can ever say that it, it's, it's gone. You, you know, it, it's not always at the front of my mind now. Um, I've got to a point where, you know, it, it's, it's just in the background somewhere. Um, but that, it's taken quite a long time to get to that point, but it, it'll always be there. And what do you think, like, you know, we all we all worry, you know, we're all humans, you know, we all worry about the existential stuff, you know, but we probably don't talk about it enough. Mm -hmm. um, you know, the phases of life are well documented, mm -hmm. um, you know, youngsters, middle age, old age, and we all pass away, you know. Um, Is that inevitable? It is. It is. Do you? I think one thing I was interested to ask you today was like, do you think? I know you've mentioned your your pre-cancer personality, as it were, or pre pre-cancer mindset kind of thing. Um. Do you do you see how do you view people who haven't been through your experience at the moment? Um. I'm not sure actually. Um, what are they, I, by that I mean, what what are they what are they are they missing an insight? Okay, so I see what you mean. Yeah, so, because of the experience, do you know what I mean? I didn't phrase the question very well actually. Okay, so um, I had an experience um, a couple of years ago where uh, somebody quite senior in in my workplace um, passed away um, very suddenly. Um, just late 40s, early 50s, you know, so so fairly young. And I remember having conversations, supportive conversations with a number of different people who were absolutely and utterly frightened because of what had happened, you know. It was kind of this, well, if it can happen to him, it can happen to anybody. And I remember at the time thinking, why am I not as affected as these people? Why am I not having that kind of um, thought process? And I thought, you know, that I think the reason is that I've already faced my own mortality. Um, I, I know we're all going to die, and I've I've faced up to that and accepted it. I think, um, which is perhaps where other people, and you know, I, I'm glad that other people haven't had to do that. It's it's not that I wish they they had done it because I would never wish this experience on anybody um, but yeah I think it brings a, a different perspective there's some really interesting stuff going on at, at, um, at the moment actually that, that one of the um, authors I've um, talked about in in a couple of my blogs is it's Liz O'Reardon she's a she's a breast surgeon who developed breast cancer and then had to stop working as a, a surgeon because of it and a lot of the stuff that she and others are doing is, is about 
having those conversations about death beforehand. Um, she talks about that kind of euphemisms and so on that, that um, a bit like my, well, we have a suspicion of, of invasive breast cancer. Instead of saying that, you know, let's be really upfront and, and allow people to process and to consider and to think about what what they want to happen at their death. You know, what 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 makes a good death for them? Um, and it is, it's, it's just a, it, it's a subject that we don't particularly talk about. It's not something necessarily that, that pharmacists are um, encountering perhaps, you know, it's, but, but we, I've yeah. started to, I've started to do some stuff with my students around um, bereavement and having those difficult conversations because actually, as you know, as a community pharmacist, very often the first health professional that a, a family member is encounters is when they come to return their, um, their, their all the drugs and the control drugs that they don't want lying around the house um, when somebody's mm -hmm. passed away. And, you know, as a community pharmacist, I didn't feel prepared for those conversations um, until later in my career when I'd done a, a bit more kind of um, training around it. So it's something I'm trying to bring into conversations with students. It's about, it's about being prepared for it, not not in a negative way, but being ready to have the conversation about it. Mm -hmm. I that, it's, it's fascinating to hear. Yeah, no, no, that's that, that's 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 very interesting. With um, I had a very interesting conversation. Um, it was a previous podcast actually with with a guy, uh, David Whiteman. He he actually started a a vaccination company for um Prokey for um you know care homes and third sector and that kind of thing but anyway his his core sort of activity or job or profession is funeral director and mm. I, he, he will correct me when he hears this but he actually became a funeral director very young at the age of 23 and you know speaking to him was fascinating about about facing our own mortality and um yeah. He actually described on that podcast how how happy a, a process it can often be. You know that there could be there could be joy in the darkness and the process and the the bringing of folk together and stuff. So obviously he's he sees a lot of families that are are grieving and so on and so forth. But I just find what he was he was talking about very interesting. And, and actually he he said sort of similar sentiments to what you're saying. You know. In, it's really, if you can, it's really good to talk about it with your family or uh, our friends and, and sort of gently and maybe through euphemisms or what, whatever the method is, sort of face into it. But the, the other thing I was wanting to sort of ask you about, which, which is really where the crossover, I guess, from, you know, patient perspective to uh, professional perspective is is your experience, and I, and I, I know you're, you're, you're so professional, you're not, this is not to encourage a moan or anything like that, but I do think there's some really interesting and important insights that you've shared over the years about, you know, patient-centered care, what it's actually like to be an, you know, because you're an educated patient, you, you know, you, you must have heard sort of, I'm, I'm assuming heard little, you know, bits and pieces of conversations and and thought, oh gosh, I know a little bit about that. I put two and two together and so on. I'm not sure if that happened, but coming round to sort of discussing how 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 we can 
sort of share those insights with pharmacists. What, what was it like to be like a professional patient, if you know what I mean? Um, it was it was quite challenging actually because um, my professional mind almost disappeared when I was in the patient mode, and and where I would be quite confident and assertive and so on, I, I kind of I almost felt like I lost it. Um, when I was in the patient mode and, and gradually sort of started to recover. I think part of it was every single time I went to get some information or to hear something, it was it was more bad news. You know, there was kind of that nine months of just always hearing bad news and not thinking it could get any worse and then it gets worse and, you know, that, all of that. So my, my mindset wasn't very positive at that point. Um, and I didn't challenge some of the things that, that I, I perhaps with hindsight would have challenged. Um, I did challenge a couple of things and, and I suppose I've got two um, anecdotes really that, that illustrate person centre care. I've written quite a, a bit about, you know, I, I, would, I have always believed in person centre care but sometimes it's quite challenging to deliver and, and again that's something that I talk with my students with around what are the challenges to delivering person-centered care both from your own perspective and the tensions that that can create you know so the patient who who's choosing not to adhere to medication for very good reasons and there you know how do you as a professional deal with the tension of that um, but also thinking about the patient as uh, as a person and having choice so I suppose there's two stories. I'll start with the one about my tamoxifen treatment. I've written about this, so you may have read about it, but I um, spoke to my consultant and said, um, I'm really struggling with tamoxifen. Um, I understand why I'm taking it, but the side effects are just horrific. And you know, that, that big long list, I can take everything off and I just don't feel myself at all. Um, and but I know I've got to take it is what I said to him and he said well actually because of the level of risk that you've got you could make a choice not to take it so it does reduce your risk of recurrence um, but that it's fairly small reduction um, because your your existing risk is is not that high um, and so you could choose to take it not to take it if you wanted to and I thought oh okay I have a choice and I looked at him and I said, OK, I'm going to choose to take it. And my whole attitude towards it changed at that point. I felt like because I'd been given a choice, I, it, it felt completely different. You know, I felt like the, the weight had been lifted from my shoulders. And yes, I could cope with these side effects because I was choosing um, to cope with them. And that was a real lesson for me in terms of um, patient choice and, and patient opportunity and it, again that's one that I've, I, I use with students quite a lot in terms of um, learning about adhe adherence and, and um, shared decision making particularly. Um, second one's a bit of a silly one um, well it's not silly it has a serious note to it but um, while I was in hospital um, I think I was on day 11 and my reconstruction was kind of failing. They were making me lie in bed still so that not, no more damage happened or whatever. And I was, I was obviously really frustrated and upset and frightened, I think, as well. And um, the, the ward round 
came in, my consultant, um, the registrar and nurse um, and several junior doctors, a couple of whom who'd made comments to me in the past. And my consultant said to me, can we have a look today? And I said, no. And he kind of, what's going on? And I said, I am not getting my boobs out this morning until everybody had, has introduced themselves. At which point the nurse dissolved. They, they, they all looked really shocked, but they all did it, you know, and, and there were two, two junior doctors there who had never yet introduced themselves to me. They, and it was all around the time of Kate Granger and the Hello My Name Is campaign and so on. Kate was still alive at that point. And I thought, this is just wrong. You're treating me as a cancerous breast rather than as a person. Um, and so later on in the day, my consultant came back up and he was always very respectful. And I said, look, I'm really sorry about earlier, but you have no idea how it feels to be vulnerable and in a bed and frightened. And just as we were talking, he was consenting me to have my final surgery. And um, just as we were talking, one of the other junior doctors came in and he hadn't been around that morning. And he looked, I could see the look exchanging, the eyes making contact. And he looked at me, made eye contact and said, hello, my name is Ewan and I'm one of the junior doctors. And I just kind of went, you. <laughs> And uh, you know, and I thought, you know what, I have to keep. It's it's just I can't not do it. It's 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 the teacher in me is 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 trying to help others learn, um, from my experience. So yeah. Sorry, that was so a big did long. You, did you? No, it's fine. That's fine. It's good. It's interesting. Um, did you? Did you? I, I often wonder it, like in the busyness of of a hospital or a. Or a GP practice that that well, as you say, you know, you put it a bit more eloquently than I did. But did so you obviously felt unseen at times. Is that fair mm. to say? Absolutely, absolutely. I mean, I when I, I I didn't tell students or colleagues when I was leaving work what was going on because I was too, you know, I was processing it myself. I was too, I couldn't cope with other people's emotions. But by the time I came back, I'd I'd made peace with it you know and I'd come to terms with it and I was quite open with my students when I returned about um what had happened and I said you know I want to share my experiences with you not not so that you're looking at me but so that the same things don't happen and every single experience healthcare experience I've had the medical care was fantastic all the way through the differences between poor care and good care was communication and the consultation and the relationship with with the the professional. Um, it's it's in, it's interesting, like how you say communication is a problem in terms of, you know, being seen and and being treated as a as a person really. But uh, we you know we follow you know it's a bit morbid, but we follow the the prevention of future future deaths reports that come mm. through. And you know I know. Um, uh, colleagues like Georgia Richards have have done, you know, they're doing their PhD on uh, Georgia's doing her PhD on sort of looking through all these these documents and trying to find patterns and so on and so forth, and obviously share the information. But it's incredible there where where you know how often um, medical error is down to poor communication as well. So I don't know if there's any if there's been any research done around you know if if, if patient centered care is better and and you know. Uh, you know your your you know doctors or pharmacists introduce themselves and and they look at the whole person a lot more thoroughly and you know they try and consider the whole picture whether 
you know, raising the overall level of communication helps reduce the risk. I'm not sure if that's if that's a fair um, I think, thing. I think thing to make. it would seem I, to make sense to me, but does, yeah. I mean I've I've not done reviews on it or anything. I've not particularly looked into the um the literature around um risk and um clinical decision making. I, I would say I would imagine that that listening is is one of the big things. So um, I'm involved in a in a group of a community of people with um, who've had breast cancer, and a number of those um, have secondary breast cancer. And there, there's a really strong message that people are not listened to when they go along with niggles or um, a little bit of back pain or whatever. They're they're, they're kind of dismissed. Um, and I've got a, a friend who has produced a, an infographic on secondary breast cancer with all the all the symptoms um, and all the signs and symptoms of breast cancer, just specifically for that reason, for people to take along and say, look, these are the signs of secondary breast cancer. Take me seriously, please. Um, and, and I was really fortunate that I had a GP who listened and acknowledged and did something, you know, but there are a lot of there are a lot of stories and, and I'm not blaming anybody, you know, we're all under pressure, the health service in particular is under a lot of pressure, um, but failing to listen um, can often lead to negative outcomes. Mm -hmm. And what, you know, sort of, you know, a lot, lots of different pharmacists read, listen to, watch pharmacy and practice stuff, content I suppose is what you call it, isn't it? Um, and we, we we attract a range of opinion and a range of interesting people to engage with through these various mediums, which is great. But is there any common bit of advice? Maybe I mean you've covered the the say hello bit and introduce yourself and you know be patient centered. But is there any sort of advice for pharmacists? You know, like, like I'm thinking of like you know if you're working a let's say you're a locum working in a shop you know, a pharmacy you've never been in and you get a tamoxifen script in does that person want you to go and speak to them or 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 is there a way you can engage them what's your as a patient like what's your thinking around that maybe if it's a new prescription for tamoxifen mm -hmm. or, or one of the other ones you know what's have you any thoughts around all of that Ruth? Yeah that's that's a really interesting one and th there's not going to be one answer fits all um, you know, I, I think I think my feeling is that we and, you know, anecdotally from friends, family, you know, colleagues, um, we don't communicate enough in, in community pharmacy. So there's a lot of handing over of prescriptions without any kind of offer of advice. Um, I, I would always ask the question, is there anything you'd like to talk about? You know, or is there anything I can help with with this? Um, if it's a new prescription, I'll very often say this is a new prescription. Do you have any concerns that I can help with? Um, the tamoxifen thing in particular, um, I know um, that there was some talk of doing some research that, that there's a very high um, or very low compliance rate. Um, and there's a lot of research being done around um, patients stopping taking it. So again, it's it's just being prepared to have those risk conversations, you know, as in 
what's the risk and the benefit you know why why are you taking something again that's something I do with my students I use some of the nice decision making aids and we work through how to have that conversation around um, risk and benefit um, but it's not about forcing that onto a patient um, it's about listening to what they want um, and not assuming that what we want to say to them is what they want to hear. Um, so yeah, ask ask the question. I think would be the the thing. And if don't be offended if somebody says no, I'm fine, thank you. I don't want to talk about this. Um, it's one of one of the times I I don't often mention my um, own experienced patients. And I went out to speak to a patient when I was doing local one day, and um, she was getting tamoxifen, and I just started it really gently and, and just asked how she was getting on with it. And she kind of looked at me and, and I said, look, the reason I'm asking, I'm, I'm taking it too. And, and it, it, start, it ended up being a conversation about her getting some emotional support and, and how to access that and where to look for that. And I hadn't meant to say anything. I hadn't intended to say I, I can understand your experience, but I, I started it off really quite gently and could tell that she was really struggling. Um, so it, it, it is about, you know, and I, I appreciate the pressures of time and that um, we don't have the same amount of time as we would want to have with every single patient. That's very often what pe people say to me when I talk about person-centered care. But you know, that whole skill mix, it's about using your staff effectively. It's, it's about, it's about them potentially being able to offer a conversation with the pharmacist rather than just handing out a thing. Is there anything we can do to help you? Would you like to speak to the pharmacist today about your medicines? Fairly simple stuff. Um, but, you know, yeah. because we're under pressure, we, we don't do it. Yeah, I get I, I totally get the pressure bit and, you know, everyone's struggling or all the rest of it. but. I do think that little anecdote about the, you know, you you spotting that person that that's the that's the gold that you can, you know, oh, what's the word like or how to put it like, that's what other pharmacists who haven't gone through, you know, what I describe as quite a brutal process, emotionally and physically for you, you, you know, you you've been there, so you can you can spot potentially what's going on behind the scenes, so it. That's empathy, isn't it? And you know, it, but I don't you know, think you need to experience something to be empathetic. I think you need to be you need to be able to read people. You need to be able to um, go with if you're instinctive. You know, it's going with those instincts and not pushing things on people. You know, very often what I'll say to people is, you know, is everything going all, all right with your medicines? And and if they say yes, I'll just say, well, you know, we're here if you want to have a conversation about it or. Um, it, it, it is about just um, it's about reading people and, and if, if that's not a skill particularly it's about practicing it and, and learning how to do it you know it take it was there was something I was watching on TV last night I know what it was it was one of these police programs and and the police were talking about you know with experience they can tell when somebody's lying to them um, and it is just that it's it's about the more you communicate people with people the more you kind of learn to understand them and can read what's happening. Um, and you don't need to have had the same experiences of, as me to be able to do that. Um, you just have to practice at it. Very, very nice way. I think I think I'll draw it to a close. Very nice way to finish, Ruth. I think um, really 
as I said at the start, it's 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 lovely, you know, well, very like courageous of you to to share your story. Um, you know, a lot of personal information you've you've written about and and helped share with other people, most most notably pharmacists. And you know, you you probably don't realise it, but you you know you you you've influenced me positively. You've you will have influenced hundreds, if not thousands, of pharmacists who will just They'll just quietly think about your experience and, and reflect, and I bet I bet it's changed, you know, lots of people's practice. So, um, and it's also I was just going to say very fit, like really fitting that you're, you you know you've you've joined us for the for our first ever conference as well. Given that you uh, without labouring the point, you know you gave, you gave me a shot really in pharmacy. So, um, it, it's lovely. And fingers crossed. Yeah, exactly, exactly. So yeah. So I mean, if I can do it, goodness me, anybody can, for goodness sake. Um, but yeah, hopefully, hopefully in, in years to come, we'll um, we'll do this conference face to face, and um, we nice. can we can meet up in person with with friends and colleagues. That would be lovely, wouldn't it? Yeah, a wee glass of prosecco would go down well. <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. Late late afternoon uh, gin and tonic, and uh, and ease us into the evening. That would be very nice, but. Thank you very much. It's lovely to see you and uh, hopefully see you in person soon. Yep. Take care. It's a pleasure. See you soon.